0: morning, ZPC. We are so excited that you guys are with us today. What a fantastic morning it has been already, and thank you, Jason and the team. The doxology always makes my heart so happy. My name is Ilya Markovich. I'm the director of Next Gen Ministries here, and as Scott mentioned in his prayer, our team has been really at it this whole summer. Uh, even Brendan, our middle school director, was a part of a uh, lock-in on Friday night So he was awake till 7 a.m., and here he is. So thank you, Brendan, for that. That's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, The middle schoolers had a great time during that uh, lock-in, and thank you uh, to you again. I, I am glad I didn't have to do that one, so that's phenomenal. This morning, we get to dive into the book of Romans as we continue our sermon, Grace Dangerous. And so I would ask that you listen as I read the word to you. Romans 4, 1 through 3, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. Would you pray with me? Father, as we dive into your word this morning, we ask for humility and patience. We ask for your grace and your kindness. And God, we ask that your word would impact and change our lives. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you for all that you have done and you are doing. In your son's great and holy name, amen. Amen. So being invited to speak during this Grace Dangerous Sermon series has uh, me a little on edge. I'll be completely honest. Today actually has me a little bit more on edge than normal. Uh, my wife is about nine to a thousand months pregnant at this point. Uh, and actually, over the last couple of days, we were debating back and forth if we text Scott and say, Scott, you might need something ready. <laughs> we chose not to. We trusted on this one uh, because there could be a little baby girl on the way. Well, there's no text message, so we're okay right now. Uh, it's no, no baby girl right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in this weird space where I, I feel very exposed and kind of anxious and a complete lack of control uh, for what's going on. For any of you who've had kids, you understand that feeling, that complete lack of control. And while I'm standing here talking about a lack of control, um, I've chosen to try and be as humble as possible. So I that you bear with me, and if I wander off and I stare in a corner and start to panic or get a little pale, someone get me a bottle of water quick. The anxiety might jump in. Who knows? But I wanted to tell you a little bit about me when I was a kid to get us started. When I was in third grade-ish, I should say most all of elementary school, deep into middle school, it, there was a slight dip in high school, and then it came back in college. I was, a, I was and am a voracious reader. As, with as much time as I could spare it to it, I try to. And as a kid, it was not uncommon for me to actually pick up, you know, um, of course, these are young know, adult books as opposed to you know, full on high level things, but it was not uncommon to finish a three 300- to 500 page book in a night. And I would pull all-nighters and, and wake up in the, and around four, five, 6 a.m., I'd go, what have I done? <laughs> And turn off the light and get a couple hours of sleep before school that day and the whole next day My mind would be racing with this whole book trying to process all the stuff I had read because maybe I'd gone too quickly. I didn't quite internalize any of it and one of the things I noticed about myself as a reader is uh, That my favorite series was and probably will always continue to be Star Wars It's just phenomenal for those of you who don't know Star Wars at all, let me give you a brief synopsis. There's good and there's bad. There's light and there's dark. And then there's a bunch of people on each side of this thing, either with laser guns or laser swords called lightsabers, and they battled it out for sort of the eternal destiny of the galaxy. It's phenomenal. I mean, there's so many things you can do with this. There's so much depth. There's so much character. And, I, and, and for me, I was always drawn to this series, I think because of that grand battle, and I wanted to be a part of that battle. And as I read it, though, one of the things that st- stood out to me is, I didn't like any of the stories about the Jedi. And if you don't know what a Jedi is, the Jedi were the beings and the humans and the different creatures from all across the galaxy who could use uh, their, what some might call, spirituality <laughs> or connection to this eternal power of the Force to uh, move things around and to essentially be able to discern the future a little bit more soon and, and, to, and when you're on the dark side, cause some, some destruction. And I was never drawn to these stories. Some people were. Some people are very into these. They love the lightsabers. They love the lasers. They love all of it. And for them, there's a great joy and excitement. For me, it, it, I just never connected. Because, again, I don't know about you. When I watch a movie or I watch a, a book, maybe this is my own self-interest coming out a little bit, I always kind of feel like, who am I in this story? And every time I read a story about Jedi, I realized that this was never going to be me. I can never be the paragon, the epitome of goodness, or even the epitome of darkness. In any way, I felt to some effect that there was no way I could live up to these things. I didn't have any magical powers. But the people I could live up to were all of the side people, just the normal people, the people who just had to like, make it work and figure it out. One of my favorite characters is a guy named Wedge Antilles. There's a whole 10-book series about this guy. Uh, He was one of the uh, secondary pilots uh, on the run to the Death Star. If you guys know what I'm talking about, this should give you a little bit of joy. If you don't, there's the original trilogy. It's worth your time. But Wedge is just a normal guy doing his best and screwing it up royally. And as I read these series, I thought, yeah. I get that. <laughs> that I understand. Is diving it headfirst, not 100% sure how it's going to work, and having no idea where you're going to land, hoping for the best, and doing what you can with what you've got. But what's interesting about that story is somehow that wasn't the story I was given about what it means to be a Christian. And so as I preach this morning, as I teach this morning, I I want to clarify something real fast. I don't want to sound or come off as if I am on this stage trying to impart some great wisdom on other people. I really don't. In many ways, as I I talked this out with my team a little bit this week, one of the things I wanted to try and communicate is that in many ways, I feel as if I'm trying to teach myself in this sermon and in the practice of putting this together. Because this is a narrative I'm still trying to understand that Christians are supposed to look like Jesus. They're supposed to be righteous, justice oriented, heroes, the kinds of people that do good things and empower those who are suffering. And I don't, I don't think I live up to that in many ways. I feel like in many ways, I'm just trying to do my best. And I can tell you with certainty, and my team can also tell you with certainty, <laughs> I really mess things up. <laughs> and thankfully, they work with me to sort things out. So that's why reading Romans 4 is such an interesting process. If you guys have been reading along in the New Testament with us, and you've gotten through Romans 4, then you're familiar with the sort of premise here, it essentially, as the scripture passage has said, is that Abraham, the father of faith, the picture of idealistic Judaism. The one who brought it all together, who connected with God personally, was counted righteous by his faith, not by his actions at all. And in fact, Paul goes on to elaborate in this uh, philosophical argument he's making to the Jewish Romans that, if, in fact, he were being rewarded for his behavior, and his good works, then it wouldn't be a gift, his righteousness. It wouldn't be a part of a promise. It would be an exchange. And that changes the whole orientation of it. You see, for me, there was this weird experience growing up where I saw my parents as perfect. I saw my pastors as perfect. And then in high school, I had a couple experiences with Christian leadership that were less than perfect. Painful, downright unchristian. And it kind of rattled me a little bit. Not only did this happen in high school, I get into college, and, and as I'm stepping more and more into my, my walk as a Christian and my, my walk as a follower of Christ, the pain sort of just keeps showing up. <laughs> And maybe I'm a little too cynical for my own good, and maybe that's what I focus in on. But these things just keep happening, and these messy, messy, messy people just keep being involved in what should be this wonderful city on a hill, this light to the world. And as a young Christian, I didn't really know what to do with any of that information at all. So, of course, we dive into the book of Romans. We see in Romans 4, Abraham being the example that we should be looking after. So I wanted to describe to you a little bit, for those of you who may not know, I want to give you a bit of uh, information on Abraham and maybe a little refresher for those of you who know him really well uh, on sort of what his life was like. Uh, Abraham was just sort of a guy God went to. (laughs) God showed up in his life one day, and Abraham, for some reason, was super responsive to this divine being, sort of starting to talk to him. Apparently, that wasn't as bizarre as maybe we might experience it to be. But in Genesis 12, Abraham is told by God to leave your family, leave your friends, leave your home, and travel away. And Abraham does this interesting thing where he leaves his friends, he leaves his home, leaves most of his family, and brings his nephew Lot. And it's interesting because, again, when you're reading in Genesis, when you're reading in Genesis 12, this is a very brief, like, mention. And God doesn't, like, slap him on the wrist. There is no sort of, like, what have you done? This isn't right. But Christians understand this and commentary writers understand this to mean Abraham just didn't do what he was told. He brought his nephew Lot along. I was trying to think of a phrase for this, this behavior, this kind of thing that maybe this Christian, this, this follower of God was doing, and I, I feel like it's, it's, he's hedging his bets. He's saying, yes, God, of course, absolutely, 100%. I will do exactly as you say, kind of, sort of. You really do know what you're talking about. Clearly, you're God of the universe, and I'm going to trust you-ish. Let me go ahead and do 95% of what you've said. And then go down in history as the father of faith, one whose faith counted himself as righteous. Like he's praised for this behavior. And you know what? We all make mistakes. So let's go ahead and give Abraham the benefit of the doubt here. Right? So we move forward in Genesis, and well, Abraham's given an, an interesting opportunity. He's traveling. Uh, he goes to Egypt. There's a famine. And when there's a famine, you go where there's food. Egypt tends to have a lot of food in this time. So we trust Egypt to have a, a stockpile. Abraham goes to Egypt. And when he gets there, he shows up and he brings his wife Sarah along. And, and she's beautiful. And, and he thinks, Well, how do I get out of this scenario? I'm a stranger in a strange land. I show up with this beautiful woman. Would someone not just, would the Pharaoh not just want to kill me and take my wife? Well, okay, honey, here's what we're going to do now you're my sister. Okay. You're my sister. You just go ahead with Pharaoh so that I will be treated well. I'm sorry. That's a pretty, that's like not like a minor thing. That's a pretty like terrible exchange. It's like, honey, okay, look, okay, look, you're just going to have to go ahead and kind of do what Pharaoh wants. And I'm going to be over here while he treats me well. Sound good? That's a pretty brutal exchange. Not very godly. <laughs> Not very rooted in faith. And in fact, uh, Pharaoh is told. What is this? Yeah, Pharaoh is told by God that this is. Oh no, Pharaoh this. I'm sorry. I apologize. That's Abimelech. Pharaoh is struck with disease. And he realizes, as a follower of the divine, that when you're struck with disease, it means you've done something wrong. What's the thing that's changed in my life? Well, we have this new woman in our area, and apparently uh, this is not okay. And he goes to Abraham, and he, Pharaoh of Egypt, has to correct Abraham's behavior, the follower of God. Okay. This guy's pretty faithful so far. Abraham then goes on, and they're traveling some more later on, and, and... God had just made a promise in Genesis 15 that he would be the father of a great nation. That his descendants would look like the stars. And if you read the account in Genesis 15, it's one of the most moving accounts, in my opinion, because it's this very powerful covenant ceremony between Abraham and God. If you don't remember Genesis 15, read Genesis 15. This will blow your minds. But then in Genesis 16, Sarah's like, look, I haven't gotten pregnant yet. Why don't you go ahead and just like take my slave? Great idea, right? Because God promised you would have a son. I haven't quite fulfilled this. So apparently there's something wrong with me. And let me go ahead and then just hand you my slave so that you can get her pregnant. So then then actually you can fulfill God's promise. Again, this feels very underhanded, ungodly. Father of faith, ladies and gentlemen. And not only when this plan goes forward, Abraham, then when Sarah's like, hey, look, this whole thing's gotten really messy. I need you to step in and help sort some of this out. His response is, hey, look, this is your slave. Why don't you do what you think needs to be done? He throws all responsibility out the window. And then almost immediately following this, there's another wife becomes my sister scenario with Abimelech. And God came to Abimelech and said, hey, that's, that's his wife. Don't, no, no. Abraham lied about his wife being a sister twice to get special treatment. After taking a slave, shirking all responsibility in that moment and ignoring God's commands on the front end. And he has been presented as the paragon of faith, and his faith is counted as righteous. For many of us, I feel like we can do a little better. (laughs) I feel like we can do a little bit better than Abraham in these scenarios. I feel like, at the very least, I'd like to think that when presented with the same options, I would do a little bit better than Abraham here. And yet his faith is counted as righteousness. So then I ask myself, and so then the the internal struggle comes in. Is my faith counted as righteousness? At what point is my faith not counted as righteousness? Or am I focused in on my behaviors? Am I supposed to? to just start kind of ignoring God's stuff. And this is where my mind kind of goes a little astray and a little confused and a little all over the place. Because we started in Romans 4, talking about faith being counted as righteousness. And then we see this picture of perfection, this idealist version of Judaism, really not perfect at all. And yes, he transitions, and over the course of his life, he becomes a more, what we would say, clean-cut follower of God. He begins to fill that mold a little more accurately. But I'm still really uncomfortable with this whole sort of thing. That Paul, writing to the Jewish Christians, would use that guy as an example of what faith looks like. And wrestling with this idea, one of the things that kind of jumps into my own head is, well, then what about all these other heroes of faith that I've heard so much about? Because what's interesting about the Bible is that when you dive into it, as many of you know, they tell terrible stories about a lot of people. It's one of the few pieces of quote-unquote propaganda That talks badly about the people it's trying to push forward. I mean, think about it. We have Abraham to start us off, right? We have Moses, who is a murderer in Egypt. We have King David, who is a murderer and a rapist. Yeah, King David, a man after God's own heart. We have Paul, who goes and cuts a guy's, sorry, Peter, who goes and cuts a guy's ear off at one point. We have Paul who was forming violent mobs to smash people with rocks because they disagreed with his beliefs. These are brutal, unkind stories. And that's like the tip of the iceberg. So as a follower of Christ, like I said at the beginning, maybe this is just for me. But I'm a little encouraged by these stories because on my worst days, I can sort of go, okay, wow, I really screwed up today. But what's nice is on this list of heroes of faith, I sort of lay in somewhere in the top three because I haven't murdered anybody. So I'm probably a little bit higher up on that list. And maybe what we could do is start to push them into different ranks. Maybe we could start to look at their faith and try to evaluate who was good, who was bad. Maybe we could start to give them letter grades. And maybe all of us, we could just get on our own list here. This would be phenomenal. It would be a really great way to know where we stand with God is by putting people side by side and comparing their behavior and their actions and their beliefs. You see, people weren't in these scenarios 100% good. They weren't 100% bad. And again, as all of us know, On some level, there's a lot of gray. There's a lot of mess. A lot of mess. And I think what, what we're finding in Romans 4 and in the scriptures is that mess is a part of it. I mean, mess is actually a part of it. Like, my lack of control in my own life right now that's human experience. That's being a person, having a complete lack of control. And then somehow, some way, we ourselves find it desirable to show ourselves in a state of almost complete control. Now we got it all figured out. I mean, Paul's writing to the Jewish people in Rome. The Jewish people in Rome, the Jewish followers in Rome, Here was one of the things that they were doing at the time. The Jewish followers had this sense that because they had followed the law and all the Jewish practice, that they were on a higher level, as it were, than any Gentile believers that came. Because they didn't quite get it. They hadn't quite sacrificed enough. They haven't given enough. They don't understand it like we understand it. We get this God guy way better. <laughs> because we've been doing this a lot longer. And Romans four flies in the face of that striving to be at the top of the list. Romans 4 flies in the face of this attempt at being perfect or complete and whole, of having it all figured out and all wrapped up, because Romans 4 is bringing to the surface this truth that we kind of all know but don't want to know, this truth that our eternal identity is not rooted in our behavior or even our beliefs, Our eternal identity is rooted in our commitment to the journey to Christ.